Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chrono Skimming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. You can also find the show at X'sForPodcast.com and at X's for Podcast on Twitter. Today, we're going to be taking another look at Axe Judgment Day number two, as well as the first issue of the new series of Demon Days comics, Demon Wars, Iron Samurai number one. But kicking things off, we're going to be taking a look at the most recent Strange Tales Infinity comic. Now, this one focuses on She-Hulk, and I guess I hadn't realized how this title was part of the Marvel Unlimited initiative to help bring in new readers coming from the multimedia projects. The first few have focused on Victor Strange, Jane Foster and the Mighty Thor, and Clea Wong and Miss America. Now, these all sort of connect to the bigger picture of the MCU, whether it's a movie or a TV show, and of course, She-Hulk's dropping in the same week as her new TV show makes a whole lot of sense. I actually hadn't seen the Victor Strange Strange Tale when it came out, and I had trouble locating it on the Marvel Unlimited app without actually like scrolling to it in the list. It wasn't coming up when I searched. And so I felt a little bit like I might have missed out on it when it came out. I might not have clicked it in general. I'm not always the biggest fan of Doctor Strange side characters. And for those who aren't aware, Victor Strange is actually a already existing Doctor Strange character, having been around since the 1980s, first appearing in the pages of Doctor Strange. Strange, Sorcerer Supreme number 10 in August 1989. He also has gone by Baron Blood, and he's only had about 18 or 20 total appearances. So putting him in this narrator's position for Strange Tales, this reimagining of this classic Marvel banner as a way to help bring in new readers, it's a really interesting take. And Al Ewing and Ramon Box's first issue was a lot of fun to read. I caught back up on all of these issues, and I wanted to be sharp as I could understanding this series to be able to talk about the She-Hulk installment. Now, I loved the first episode of the TV show. I'm a big fan of She-Hulk as a character, and most of her runs have been a real blast to read. In the last few years, she's gone through some interesting transformations, especially in the pages of Jason Aaron's Avengers, which we've been covering on this show. Now, we haven't quite gotten up to World War She-Hulk yet, but we will definitely be covering that once we get to it in order. Now, the events of that miniseries definitely have some impact on the nature of this story, but I don't know that any of it is necessary reading to understand what you're looking at. One of the things that I think is so great about these strange tales and who is stories is that Marvel has worked to design easy entry points where should you read that issue, you shouldn't have too much trouble dialing in to the events of just about any common story for those characters. So I do think that in a lot of ways, this provides a new reader with a pretty easy entrance point into She-Hulk. And I think it's necessary. She-Hulk's had over a thousand appearances at this point, and that really makes her one of the Marvel's most notable female character like staples that hold that universe together. She's also appeared in so many locations, it's hard to ignore her storied history. She-Hulk first appeared in her own series, Savage She-Hulk, which ran for 25 issues. Now, those first few issues definitely don't see the gen that we're used to. It might even reflect some of the more questionable gen from later runs that not everybody is as big a fan of, but Jennifer Walters' She-Hulk is best known for being 
being the smart Hulk. She is Bruce Banner's cousin, and her early adventures take a little while to get to that fourth wall breaking humor, high energy spirited fashion book, but we do get there. She Hulk cut her teeth by making appearances throughout the Marvel Universe, firmly establishing herself as just as viable as her cousin, if not more accessible, because, you know, she does whole sentences a little bit better for the most part. After her initial run in Savage She Hulk, she appears in the Marvel crossover Contest of Champions, which we have covered a number of times on this show. <laughs> she then makes her way to one of her first very significant runs on a title. She joins the cast of Avengers from issue 221 to about issue 242. From there, she segues over to Secret Wars. After Secret Wars, more as a result of what happens to Thing, She Hulk joins the Fantastic Four, where she remains a major character for a very significant amount of time. She's actually in Fantastic Four from issue 266 to 300. Now, of course, this is Marvel, so when I say somebody is in a book from this date to that date, they miss issues, they may not be part of the crossover, they might not get spotlighted in every issue, but that's a pretty significant amount of Fantastic Four time for She-Hulk to be a member, and again, it's one of those ways in which she's unique. There's only so many people who have been full-time regular members of the Fantastic Four, and to be able to count Jen as one of them definitely sets her apart. From there, she would rejoin the Avengers from roughly issue 278 to 333. This is a really interesting time for Marvel where the Avengers really weren't the powerhouse they are today. That's, of course, a result of a number of working gears, whether it was the disassembled into new Avengers event or the strength of young Avengers giving a little bit more to that word Avengers as having a meaning that's accessible to younger readers. Whatever it was, it really wasn't until the film franchise that the Avengers became like that thing. So for a lot of this run and this time, She-Hulk kind of comes and goes, she has appearances, but the overall Avengers story really wasn't the focal point of the Marvel Universe the way it's come to be today. She-Hulk also during that time appeared in her own series. There was a She-Hulk in Ceremony two-part special, as well as 57 issues of the sensational She-Hulk. She would go on to appear in some random titles throughout the early 90s, things like Fantastic Force, which, yikes, but she would go on to reappear in what is sort of the Avengers run that made the Avengers happen. Started with Kurt Busiek, it ends with Bendis, she's in that run of Avengers that gives way to Disassembled, and even though She-Hulk played a really dramatic role in Disassembled, losing control of herself and destroying Vision, it's not a major focus of Bendis's run at any point, so it is an interesting thing where somebody really set up a major change for a character, and then we sort of saw that fall by the wayside in some ways. Of course, it wouldn't be long before the run that would make She-Hulk a lot more, I would say, critically recognized would come, and that was Dan Slott's multiple runs on She-Hulk. There's 12 issues, and then it restarts. Peter David takes over at one point, and one of the things that I can't help but remember is that She-Hulk run saw She-Hulk enter the world of Civil War. It made a lot of sense that a lawyer superhero would be part of a legal storyline, so it was always really exciting to see how much attention Jen got in that period. Admittedly, I do believe that that was kind of the start of all of Jen's stories are starting to get really dramatic, but we still do see a lot of the light, the fun, the levity, the magic of She-Hulk shining through. 
However, I do think that the light levity fun magic of She-Hulk gets lost somewhere around the Fall of the Hulks event. There was a lot more focus on things like Red Hulk, Rolk, which of course gave way to Rolky, that's Red She-Hulk. So we also had Lyra, who was an alternate universe She-Hulk. There was a period of time where perhaps Jen wasn't getting the do her verdigree demanded. And ultimately, we would see Jen return to some really interesting prominence in the pages of Matt Fraction's FF. This was with Mike Alred, a personal favorite artist of mine, and I genuinely think that this was a great time to see her return to her roots, returning to the Fantastic Four somewhere that she had made a long home. And while that run might not have been particularly long, it is exciting to see that it's well-remembered. She-Hulk would make appearances all over the Marvel Universe, and most notably in places like Mighty Avengers, before turning back up in She-Hulk by Charles Sewell. This run is visually iconic, it has some very memorable arcs, and I am going to to assume that we'll see elements of this run, just like elements of the Dan Slott and Peter David runs, make it into the TV show. After her brief return to the Fantastic Four, She-Hulk makes her way back to the Avengers, where she stars in A-Force and Avengers by Jason Aaron. She's received a lot of attention, whether it's for her possible relationship with Thor, or her actions during War of the Realms, becoming a Gamma Bomb. She's had a lot going on. In the pages of Empire, She-Hulk saw some real damage, and it seemed as though she died. There was a She-Hulk Immortal She-Hulk one-shot, which coincided with the events of Immortal Hulk, and it definitely brought the character to some new places. And seeing her back, seeing her back in such a big, fun way, is one of the most exciting things for a She-Hulk fan. I feel like for many years, She-Hulk has been, in some ways, victim of the fact that she shares a name with her cousin, and even though, for all of these appearances, all of these teams she's served on, she should be better recognized, in some ways, I wonder if the the adjective before her name has made it so much harder for She-Hulk to thrive in a world where women in comics just don't get taken as seriously as they deserve and as the medium necessitates they be. Seeing her in this story where she gets to be a woman with agency as both an intellectual and as a superhero was really exciting. So finally, we're here to talk about Strange Tales, She-Hulk Infinity Comic, which is by Steve Fox, Ramon Box, Hava Tartaglia, with letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. And this was a real pleasure to read, admittedly opening up with the return to Victor Strange. This caused me to do my research and say, wait a minute, I definitely didn't see this and it made me remember that we've seen it other places. So the binding agents, the sort of book ends that keep the story together are probably the least necessary outside of it made me look for previous issues which is really all something like a bookend needs to do which just needs to remind you the anthology you're in i probably didn't need the setup quite so much but something that i enjoyed very much right away was the high energy that they bring she hulk right into the story with she's there in like athleisure wear she's in a hoodie and athletic shorts and she's in sneakers. It sounds silly that I'm focusing on some of her fashion, but too often when women are given sexy lamppost disease, they always have to be in the most beautiful designer clothes. Nothing's wrong with that. See Emma Frost. But Emma Frost is also frequently given agency and autonomy. When women are reduced to just being beautiful objects in comics, they really frequently lose that. It's little things like putting her in athletic wear that reminds us that she's also a physically active person and not just a beautiful brain or, you know, it's that level 
of depth that they give her. There's also, while, you know, of course, with a female body as beautiful as She-Hulk's, there's going to be curves and angles to highlight. The art team works so carefully to keep it attractive and on point and never overtly sexual, never over the top, because this is a non-sexual story. There's really no romance here for She-Hulk. And look, my biggest problem with She-Hulk and Juggernaut fucking is that Black Tom wasn't there filming. I don't necessarily know that every element of every character can always jibe at all times together. Who they were trying to make Juggernaut at that point and who we see him trying to be again is not the same guy that, you know, ha ha, little brother. So like, you know, we need to keep in mind that when we look at random panels from comics and even panels that were questionable at the time, there's a little bit more nuance to these things than just simply, oh, She-Hulk and Juggernaut don't make any sense together. Okay, I get that they don't make conventional sense together, but I just, you know, Kane is like one of the hottest guys in comics, so I'm just, I'm standing up for him in his giant hamburger face, you know? So, reminded that this is a non-sexual story, making sure that while we do see She-Hulk at what I would refer to as standard level of attractive that we have for this character, it is really nice to see that they don't let that erase the importance of this being a story about a woman with a job to do. Once She-Hulk is surrounded by the ghosts that are pouring out of this library, she makes that cute ghostwriter joke, which at first I thought kind of nothing of. I was like, oh, ghostwriter joke. Sure, we're covering a lot of ghostwriter. You know, maybe I should get TK on this. But the thing that really did it for me was realizing that we were being reminded of ghostwriter in an effort to set up the story in a meaningful way. Having She-Hulk also say that she still finds ghosts creepy, that makes sense. There's no amount of being exposed to things that necessarily has to change who you are as a person. So She-Hulk finding ghosts still creepy, even though she's worked with ghosts. You know what? These aren't necessarily her ghosts. I think it's a really cute moment, and it keeps that sort of lighthearted spirit. I was really amused that early on, She-Hulk was like, what year do you guys think this is? And the young girl says, oh, this was in 88, but we've been stuck here a real long time. And I literally wrote in my notes, oh, okay, she's stuck in 1988. That puts this firmly in the Marvel continuity. I wonder if she's, and then you turn the page and it's 1888. So I laughed pretty hard about that. You know, it's really great that one of the things that Steve Fox, Ramon Box, and co attempt to do is create a world in which we can appreciate that these ghosts have something going on, you know, and ghosts, ghostwriter, thinking about the title being Black Heart of Ice. I definitely got to Black Heart before he shows up. So once we get that She-Hulk is going to take on this case of this young girl who has been trapped because she never got to have her trial, it's pretty clear that we're going somewhere hellish. And once we get the black font with the white lettering, you know, the black bubble, white letter font, I very much thought we were going to be getting a ghostwriter story, right? That's one of those hallmark fonts. And when Blackheart walks in looking fine and buff, all the ways I like my Blackheart, right? Uh, Carly Rae Jepsen starts playing. I think that it really helps highlight that once they put She-Hulk in the sort of matronly look that matches the look of everyone else, Blackheart remains naked. And the reason this is significant is because they don't put Blackheart in any like funny, silly lawyer clothes. They let the fact that he is actually like an evil demon and standing in all of his nakedness really highlight the story. So Blackheart, though being Blackheart, is never going to play by the rules. And he brings in otherworldly spirits who demand revenge. And the spirits are clearly somehow angry at the child. It's done really smoothly and simply, such that you might not realize the last second reveal till the very end. The only thing that really took me out of the story was the intercuts of 
Victor Strange. While I don't think the intercuts of Victor Strange are necessarily bad, they kind of remove me from the She-Hulk of it, and I don't know that he's a strong enough character yet on his own. I would love to see him come due in something like a terrific issue of Defenders by Al Ewing, where, you know, Al Ewing and Javier Rodriguez are just destroying it and blowing the lid off of what we consider is a top-tier comic. But for me, at this point, I sort of feel like, oh, all right, I'm just being reminded of this guy. He's on the jury. Seeing him on the jury, having him planted in the room definitely helps make it a little smoother. I love that even though there is a short fight sequence, the focus is still on the lawyering. The way She-Hulk wins is realizing that the death penalty can't be applied to a child, so the worst that they could give the child is life imprisonment, and since she's been in the courthouse longer than a lifetime, it's time served. When a moment later, Blackheart is able to claim the child's life or soul or whatever, you know, you're never really sure what you're fighting for in a magical, mystical hell courtroom, you know? It turns out that the child was actually kind of evil, and She-Hulk really still did a good thing. It wasn't a story where we found out She-Hulk let this evil spirit free. Well, she was a ghost, she was haunting this courthouse. It's not like moving this spirit that possibly had the ability to interact with people in a malicious way ultimately was a bad move. And I really appreciate that because too often it's sort of like, oh no, what has she done? She helped this evil child. The story had no stakes. And that's something we've been talking about a lot on X's for Podcast. What are the stakes? It's something we talk about in the Judgment Day segment a little bit later on where we discuss that the stakes that are involved in the events of Judgment Day really force us to consider how the Marvel Universe works in COGS, and even later yet, in the Demon Wars coverage, there's discussion of how the stakes of Demon Days don't seem to have played the most direct effect on Demon Wars, but as it's only one issue in, there's of course still time to see that come together. I found myself really enjoying this story. One of the things that can be really tricky is as a reader, if you're going to give me a story in this sort of scroll form, I want it to scroll for a reason. There aren't so many moments that necessarily grab me as it needed the scrolling format to support it, but there's enough moments that feel like this was the better design choice, and it was the more intentional design choice, such that I don't really mind. You know, not everything can be X-Men Unlimited 1 through 4, where, you know, that creative team worked tirelessly to create a visual experience that told the story. Here, we got maybe even a little bit more story than we got in those issues of X-Men Unlimited, but the trade-off was just a little bit of the design uh, not being as fully realized. I can't say enough positive about the art. There are a few places that I feel that perhaps there was some amount of zooming in, zooming out that might have changed some of the level of detail, some of the quality on these panels, but there's a cartooniness that's a lightness that still fits the TV show without really abandoning the identity of the series. I feel like the colors take a lot of cues from the Charles Sewell run in a way that creates consistency, not tells me that the artist didn't know what they were doing and copied someone. This is definitely a case of let me create visual consistency for the character and for the readers. One of the most important things that Marvel needs to keep in mind is that the readers of the comics are not necessarily the same exact people that watch the TV shows. And even when I am the same human creature that does both of those things, my comic reading brain isn't necessarily my TV watching brain. And so I don't necessarily want to see the comic version directly adapted to the screen or vice versa. Because the mediums are different, it is important to keep a little bit of that separation. If I have any complaint that this maybe didn't support that connectivity, it's that we didn't get a human Jen Walters in this story. It is very much 
much a She-Hulk story, and while there is certainly no problem with a She-Hulk story versus a Jen Walters story, I am always looking forward to seeing that dichotomy of character, that value of her looking human versus her looking Jade. All said and done, I really enjoyed this story. I definitely give it an A, A- type grade. It was a two-minute read, maybe five-minute read, but it's the kind of two to five-minute read that I might do multiple times and see if I can learn anything new from. It makes me excited to see what Steve Fox might do with Jen down the line, and there's even cute touches that I appreciate that he threw in, like Ken Ghost's faint. Yeah, that's kind of silly, but, you know, it's a nice little thing that I probably wouldn't have expected and that She-Hulk called it out made a lot of sense, too. That's the kind of thing she would acknowledge. Oh, that ghost fainted. Okay. So, I hope you guys take a look at the Strange Tales series of Infinity Comics. They're a lot of fun, and I feel like they're the kind of thing that whether you're a fan of the movies and TV shows, or the comics, or the idea of the character, there's something to be taken from each of these in a really positive way, and I look forward to covering the rest of these. And speaking of the rest of the coverage today, we're going to be taking a second look at Axe Judgment Day number two before moving over to Demon Wars Iron Samurai number one. With an event as big as Axe, it's kind of hard to just talk about Judgment Day once or with just a few people. We have so many voices on this network that all have such diverse experience that all want to share their understanding of this event, so we try to make sure that there's always room for all of the voices that want to speak, and so we're bringing you a second room of discussion on Judgment Day, this one including yours truly. Following that, we're going to be taking a look at our continued love of the unbelievable Momoko-verse being crafted by Peach Momoko, Zach Davison, and Ariana Marr in the pages of Iron Samurai. This issue was just as much a visual field trip full of story to another world. It is such an exciting time to see Marvel back to crafting unique stories for alternate universes. Secret Wars really spelt the end of alternate universes in a lot of ways for a while, but it's sort of a necessary kind of brush fire situation. The multiverse had become very unwieldy, and it's not that we can't come back to those multiverse stories or those characters. This is comics. Anybody can come back. Just ask Victor Strange. But it's this idea that we're seeing specific intentional universes. I personally wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more MC2, but that's for another day. Monday, in fact. But until then, we love making this show for you three times a week every week with MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and XI4P Premiere Fridays. Don't forget, you guys can check out this show on xsforpodcast.com and xsforpodcast on Twitter, as well as over on the Hubs Plus Network, that's Hubs Plus Network, on YouTube, where you can check out extended bits of coverage with video as well as our partner series, The Billy Club, my and Tori Sheehan's examination of Daredevil, starting with the first ever stories in the 1960s and making our way to today. We intermix it with discussion of the TV show, major news items, re-releases, and more. We're having a great time, and we hope you guys check it out with us. You can also find my original work of my original comics over at KidRiotComics.com, where you can check out over a thousand pages of everybody's favorite queer speedster, or you can find me in the Young Men in Love anthology, available right now, featuring incredible creators like Joe Glass, Matt Minor, Terry Blass, Anthony Oliveira, Cena Grace. It's, there's so many people in there, it's hard to name everybody that's in it. And if you happen to be catching this same day live, you guys can check me out at Table U182 of FlameCon, and that's in New York City this weekend, 20th and 21st. It's going to be an amazing time, and we hope you guys all come out. Remember, masks on, right? You guys can check me out over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until next time, enjoy these last two segments. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, Every day is Judgment Day if you keep judgment in your heart. And we'll see you.
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another all-new Exes for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming the Class Mix, and Eternal Judgment. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me creating my very own celestial judgmental god that is coming to judge all of you on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And that would make me Kevo, and you can find me over on the socials at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. I'm Josh Will. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and you can find all of my extreme socialist political takes at FL Politician. That's P-O-L-Y. Wink, wink. Man, that's cool new sign-off, dude. I love that. And we are here to talk about a book that we have in many ways like rededicated the network to. <laughs> we are talking about Avengers X-Men Eternals, which I maintain should be Marvel Heroes, Mutants, Some of the Eternals, Judgment Day. We're looking at issue number two by Kieran Gillen and Valerio Skeeter with colors by Marte Gracia, brilliant colors that really define the title, with beautiful letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. They really bring the book to life for me. There's, of course, an incredible number of brilliant cover artists. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the Mark Brooks standard, as Mark Brooks is the standard for Marvel crossover events. Jay Bowen's design has really made up for feeling, in some ways, like Tom Muller isn't a part of this. Jay Bowen's design is also all over the X-Books, and they're really is a powerful sense of visuality to this title. And I kind of want to start with that first with everybody. One of my favorite things about a Kieran Gillen book is it's always high D&D nerd concept, but motherfucker make it fashion. And there is so much fashion to this chaos. How does everybody feel about chaos fashion? I think the, the style of this book is definitely a big part of reading it. You know, Clayton Cowles, who is, you know, lettering a million titles a month and does an amazing job on all of them is really working overtime here for Kieran Gillen, someone who, you know, definitely taxes his letterers anyway. But I mean, they have a long relationship, done a great job, but he has so many different types of fonts and textiles for all of the different, you know, whether it's our new celestial god, whether it's the mutants speaking telepathically, whether it's, you know, the eternal monsters screaming, whether it's like, there are so many different areas getting so many different fonts and textiles to give them completely different feels and make them immediately visually recognizable from each other so that way you can go through and read this very large scale diverse story without having to kind of stop and remember who stuff are Clayton Cowles is making this an easier read than it probably should be because it's such a big project I really agree with that. I also feel like I don't know if it was intentional or just the natural course of the story. Gillen has also pulled back a little bit more on how intensely Gillen this issue was. You know, one of the things that we praised over on our coverage of the Eternals is the characterization of the machine that is planet earth and the way that it spoke in a very personalized voice but that's something that can also get a little bit overly gimmicky at times and can distract from the main narrative and while i loved all of the narration boxes 
from the perspective of the waking god, I don't think that those overpowered the story in any way. I think this issue of the crossover so far has struck a much better balance between something that is more accessible toward mainstream readers and his own special style and flair for storytelling. Yeah, I think there's definitely a character balance here as well. I'm not... So it's hard for me to say because I love the X-Men and I want it all to be all X-Men. So, you know, if this was X-Men heavy, there's a chance that I would look at it and be like, yeah, it felt like a good balance between Avengers, X-Men, and Eternals because, you know, I would feel that more X-Men is the right balance. I know that we were not getting as much Eternals, but we did have the Celestial God narration. And then I felt like the Avengers content as they were coming through really helped balance. Plus, this is a story that took place primarily on Krakoa in this chapter. So for me, as an X-Men reader, it felt more balanced, although I am self-aware enough to know that it might not be for, say, an Eternals or Avengers fan. Well, and that's where I actually think this issue was like, I don't know, it was so good for me because I am not a Captain America apologist. I am a Captain America recognizer. Like, I don't have an illusion about what Captain America stands for. He is meant to stand for the best things about the nation of America, and the nation is made up of its people. He's meant to represent hope and the reasons that we want to fight for a better country. You don't have to love everything it does to believe in the power of the people and that reality that, you know, it's that Captain America serves our country, not our country should serve Captain America. He was created to stop wars, not win them. And that he is constantly pushed into the role of soldier means then that he has to pick the right soldiering moments. And one of the hallmarks of true emotional resonance for me in this story was Captain America recognizing that the mutants are heroes. And I don't care for this being referred to as Avengers, X-Men, Eternals, because it's not the Avengers. I believe every hero should be joining in on this fight. I don't necessarily think that my precious Daredevil and Elektra really have a whole lot to say, but, you know, the Warriors Daredevil have a place in defending Earth, especially Daredevil with all of her mystic connections. And, you know, I'm not sure anybody in the hand or the fist can really die at this point, but the X-Men are a group of like six voted on motherfuckers who I didn't vote for that live in a tree. It's not the sum totality of Krakoa. This is about the mutants and seeing the heroes of Marvel sort of behind the broad stripes and bright star allowed me to believe in heroes in this story in a way that kind of finally reclaimed the Avengers spot in the title for me. Yeah, I had some thoughts about Captain America in this, some feelings. I do like that. I think that Captain America as as a concept and as a character is very pure and noble and idealistic in in ways that are positive. I don't mean that negative or derogatory. I think that Captain America as written over the years by at times some rather fallible white men with limited perspective has said or done some problematic things. While I like that the Avengers, you know, Kieran Gillen who was able to utilize them and bring them in here as the Avengers recognizing and you know, he got his moment as a hero. There is definitely a part of it that to me also felt like, you know, when the same police who are spraying water cannons and breaking up and arresting gay people in the streets while they protest 
protest for their rights are then, you know, then come out to, you know, stand side by side from them at Pride and are like, look, look, we've been the good guys all along. And it's like, nah, 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 nah. Like, you're not doing a bad today. That doesn't mean that you were a good always. You know, there's a, we tend to use static language to describe a very dynamic world. And there was a lot of this that felt very much like, hey, we get to, you know, stand in a good light today to recontextualize or as if, you know, the Avengers were trying to be positioned or position themselves um, in the Cap Cyclops argument because Cyclops on the other end does not forget the other end. We know damn sure that Emma Frost does not forget all the times the Avengers and Captain America were not there for the fucking use while they were being persecuted and murdered. It is not a, a full kind of justification recontextualization. I would like to think that Kieran Gillen, you know, meant for it to invoke some of those deeper things. I at least read into it that way. And it's that thing too where Captain America is only one person and a trap that people constantly fall into is using Steve Rogers as some kind of emblem for an entire system. Even Steve himself not recognizing that he stands as this emblem of an entire system where yes there are good cops but that is not a response to or excuse for the fact that there needs to be more sweeping reform in the whole system in general and being like why can't you trust me because you are part of a wider system that has consistently been letting the mutants down and you need to recognize that and take more accountability for that both your role in it as as being you know part of that system and in fixing it rather than just turning to the people that are hurt and being like why didn't you trust me well lots of reasons lots of reasons yeah uncanny avengers you know had a great kind of setup and opportunity to do that post avengers versus x-men un- un- unfortunately it was written by rick remender and so it-, it didn't really really capitalize or you know bring in that that new era it could not do anything that showed any kind of emotional acumen yeah um but yeah i mean because there needs to be that at some point i, I think that the writers marvel has been choosing to lead the captain america solo stories are a a great step in the direction that we need i think that where you know captain america has an opportunity to really start representing more than just you know being a symbol of a system that a majority of americans know is broken and doesn't work for them um because in a different era being a symbol of that system made him a symbol of hope for everyone the american dream um but 2022 ain't that era and i think that this is one of the things that makes this an important discussion that i'm glad we're doing multiple coverages on this book because it's not as simple as always just analyzing the characters actions within the context of the crossover i think it is you know as simple as the characters are who they are on page but i would argue this is really in line with the captain america that i've been reading in jason aaron's avengers this is that character that i've been following for the last 50 60 issues he feels very much in line with the ideals of who cap has become the problem is marvel doesn't like any large publisher have control of the most fine elements of their own production at times because there's too many cogs and not enough people employed to manage them all so when in a big crossover 
or in a crossover moment. You get a voice for Captain America that isn't in step with like with the as you pointed out, Josh, incredible voices they've been bringing on to Captain America, not Nick Spencer. And there's a sort of dissonance that can occur. I honestly do not think this version of the Treehouse X-Men are the Treehouse X-Men I'm reading over in Duggan's X-Men. I also don't think in a lot of ways that this is necessarily the exact Tony Stark I was reading in Jason Aaron's Avengers. And so there comes a point where in these crossovers, you have to do the work of what DC has kind of said, fine, it's just what it fucking is. You kind of get to pick any version of the character you need and slot them in. And I wonder how, if these aren't your iterations, that resonates for people. As someone who is not the reader that you guys are and therefore does not have that interpretation of the characters, do you feel that it affects the story at all? Do you think that anything that's being done in this is... is, Do you think that anything being done in this is disingenuous to those characters? Or is it just, you know, like when we see the Guardians of the Galaxy in Thor 4 more Thor, they're not quite the Guardians that we see under James Gunn, but, you know, that is what it is. Um, So the Iron Man is interesting for me. I have not found an Iron Man solo series that I have wanted to read monthly for a long time. I think the last one I probably gave, you know, uh, an honest shot to was Kieran Gillen's Post-Avengers versus X-Men. Total same. And, you know, he has a voice for that character because in an MCU world where, you know, we kind of think of or hear Tony as Robert Downey Jr., it's hard not to have Robert Downey Jr.'s kind of voice and mannerism as that character. You know, that played very well with Kieran Gillen's own very witty, intelligent, sarcastic writing style. He loves to have a character that can shoot off barbs like that. For me, Kieran Gillen's Tony Stark, which is going to be somewhat familiar to that, doesn't necessarily feel off. If I had been reading a lot more of, you know, his current solo series or Jason Aaron's Avengers, I'm sure that there would definitely be some contrast for sure. And that's the thing. I am completely in the same boat as you. The last time I really cared about engaging with Tony Stark as a solo character was the Kieran Gillen run, which gave us that Tony is the adopted child and he has a long forgotten brother, Arnie Stark. And that is very much part of the picture that Jason Aaron fits into his Avengers. So I wouldn't say that it's like this is a disingenuous part of these characters because when these characters have 60 and 70 years of history, you kind of have to customize your version of the characters over and over again. I like this Nightcrawler more than Legion of X Nightcrawler. I like this Gene more than most Gene. I think Kieran Gillen has a real sensitivity to the voice of a strong woman. And I think, you know, I would really rather see more women writing more women characters that would be really fucking cool but if I can't have that having a writer that clearly cares about the perspective of women coming across in a realistic way and not simply using them as boob factories is pretty pretty spot on so my question for you guys then becomes how do you feel about the assault on Krakoa I know that Exodus has been a hot topic character for our show for like two and a half years now but Kevo I have no idea if you fucking know who Exodus is. No, I still don't know who Exodus is. 
<laughs> I know that they are a character in an issue of comic books that I read this week. That is all I know about them. And we've talked a lot about Exodus lately. Josh and I in particular, actually. We had an incredible discussion that turned into some phenomenal coverage of Immortal X-Men number five. Josh, do you feel that what we got of Exodus in this issue, specifically, you know, Exodus versus Sign, do you feel that that paid off on the promise of what Kieran Gillen said was going to come through Immortal 5? Yeah, we saw two Eternals that were large enough in scale and scope that they could hold off and threaten the entire entirety of mutantdom and the avengers combined and exodus pumped up and ramped up went in and went mano a mano and took one of them down that is a major hero moment for a character who has been recontextualized so i don't want to say redefined he is the exact same character he has always been in a world and an environment that better suits him and allows him to be a hero and a knight again and i love the drawing back like Kieran has made a a very clear strong comparison to him as having been a knight in the crusades and him getting to be a knight here and you know in immortal five it was the dream of slaying dragons here you know it was you know maybe a little bit slide comment about you know we're not the barbarians you know going back to you know what his feelings would have been as you know having been on i'll say the wrong side of the crusades a thousand years ago he absolutely was the hero for krakoa you know, in a way that we've seen in the past, characters like Gorgon get a chance to be, and Apocalypse, having huge hero moments without ever changing who they are or were as a character, just them finding themselves in a world that allows them to be a hero instead of a villain, which I think is an absolutely amazing thing. If we want to bring this back to, you know, 2022 America and, you know, what the symbols and the systems mean and what they do to people, I think that that is a phenomenal concept to see that a better world can give some of us the opportunity to be heroes and that a shittier world might paint us as villains instead. And it really does make me wonder what the value of the, not like I wonder if it will have value, but it makes me wonder what is going to be the reckoning of when Sign eventually gets a chance to get their revenge on Exodus, who you know, I still think he is a problem problematic nightmare, but he really did throw down for Krakoa, and I appreciate that. There was also something really great about seeing Jean Grey in such a starring role in a crossover in a way that I felt was really a long time overdue because Jean Grey is the greatest thing that's ever happened to the X-Men, and it was just so nice to see her in control for a change. Oh my god, it was such a good moment for me. I was just so fucking happy. Kieran Gillen, please write Jean Grey for the rest of time. Thank you. Sincerely, so, me. You're not going to catch me saying too many great things about King in Black, but one of them was the Donny Cates Jean Grey badass moment. Impact of Jean Grey stepping in and the immediate realization we all got of she is such a fucking powerful force in this world and why the fuck is she so underutilized why do we not see her step in and kicking ass in these major line-wide crossovers more often because good god everyone watch out Jean Grey is here was an amazing fucking moment in that series I have to say though again as the outsider I didn't exactly view it as a starring role it's just I, I an important role because I didn't really feel like she was given any more specific attention than certain other characters, but it was a specifically powerful, commanding, in control amount of attention. 
and knowing what I do about the way the character of Jean Grey is treated, like I can definitely see how that would be a positive thing and how this is a better representation than perhaps she is sometimes given. We've come a long way from Scott! Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've even come a long way from Jean has to be taken off the board early in the crossover. Otherwise, you can't explain how she does it without the Phoenix. That was another really honest to goodness reality of being a Jean Grey fan. It was always, oh, she's nothing without the Phoenix. And if a writer didn't want to have to explain why the Phoenix isn't showing up, we just wouldn't get Jean Grey at that point. It was really reductive of her as a character to make her just elements of herself. So that this really does read like the payoff we are all owed has so much value you know it really is a relief to see Jean Grey back in control of being Jean Grey I feel for so long we've had so many incredible female characters that are results of the situation around them and now we're seeing Jean Greys and Ileanas we're seeing them rise above sort of the hyper humble trappings that they're kept in so that they're never quote unquote like out of line characters And I'm just really excited for this transformation. It also feels like we are reaching a certain tipping point in creating pop culture where creators are no longer being apologetic for being true to their own work. And I think something I'm seeing similarly where that's happening right now in pop culture is certain reactions I'm seeing to the upcoming She-Hulk series and things like the character of Tatiana or things like the Daredevil yellow suit. Like, and there's a lot of negative naysayers or She-Hulk breaking the fourth wall. People are comparing that to Fleabag, even though that character has been doing that since the 80s. And I feel like creators are themselves reaching a tipping point of, F it, we don't care. You don't, you're not paying attention, then we're just going to do what we want anyway. And you're just going to have to deal with it. And it's letting Jean Grey be a powerful character, even though there are people who will be like, yeah, but this thing and this one issue from 1947 and also this other thing on the moon. Like, no, we feel that she is a powerful character and we're not going to apologize for that anymore. I'm also really excited that I feel as though I'm not being asked to apologize for specifically siding with the mutants. There's something really interesting about the way that Kieran Gillen is equally holding the Eternals responsible for so much of what they do, which I feel is somehow a bit of a departure from things we've seen. The idea that we open with these six random strangers who it seems as though won't be important and, you know, the book plays out a sort of reality tale. I don't to say morality tale, but a reality tale where the actions that we see do have consequence. And holding the Eternals to it feels like something we wouldn't have gotten if it wasn't an Eternals writer who understands how to balance it. I'm so happy you brought them up. I, they're really where I wanted to go next with this conversation. Tom, Katrina, Arjun, Daniela, Jada, and Kenta. You know, it was an interesting way to start the book. We get that last little narrative point on page one. Six people, they are all important. And if you've read Kieran Gillen books, you know that when he tells you something important, he's not fucking around. It was an interesting way to give us diverse takes. You know, we saw a diversity of human reactions to this from keyboard hero to 
you know, kind of internal, little internal bigotry, you know, unrecognized white privilege. We saw apathy. We saw just like, look, I got enough of my own problems. I can't be fucking dealing with like we saw wonder. We saw fear. We saw so many real human emotions and perspectives. And and I thought it was an interesting way to contextualize it and, and kind of present it from the the outside of the Marvel Universe, the 616 from the opening page. But then when we got the later page, the second one with Arjun, and God, that for me was a very impactful page on not just, you know, how whether or not you want to be impacted by this, like these surrounding people are going to be impacted. If you don't think that this, you know, struggle, uh, that this, you know, persecution of other people, that these large scale problems outside of your neighborhood are going to affect you, know that they can. Yeah, and really made me because now my immediate reaction is, oh, fuck, are we going to see all six of these people lose to this during it? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and just completely drew me in for these, you know, kind of peripheral characters. And uh, I think might have been the most impactful moment for me in the in the book. Because the way Kenta's leaning out that window, I'm like, he's next if it is going to be one after the other. Absolutely. I loved this as a narrative tool or device here, bringing in these characters and perspectives and, and seeing how this is bleeding out and affecting people who are not Avengers, X-Men, or Eternals. And not only that, but people who are sort of middle stakes on this, like you said, you know, you have people who are sort of more for, people who are more sort of against, but there isn't really anyone on this page and in these panels who is adamantly pro or adamantly against. This is really the perspective of the innocent bystanders to most of this drama, the people who are not very heavily affected in their day-to-day life, but it is a giant battle that is constantly going on in front of them. And so even somebody who has the most cis-normative, I-don't-know-any-queer-people life by this point in history usually is seeing something going on with queer issues because that is the world that we live in now where those sort of fights are no longer in the shadows. They are in the public forum. And even if you don't know a single goddamn mutant and have never met one in your life, you have been in some way, at least psychologically, affected by being exposed to that struggle happening in your world. And I think it was really smart to have it be six people who, you know, have opinions but are not very heavily directly affected. And, you know, is it they're all going to die over the course of this crossover? Is it that they're going to be all swept up into this drama in different ways, perhaps? You know, it has yet to be seen. When you think about the fact that when the X-Men or the Avengers or the Eternals or the Defenders or the Marvel Knights or the Defenders of the Deep or, you know, any number of teams, the Ultimates, the Champions, they do automatically have a cost to them being heroes. And that the Eternals so clearly paint a nose on it. They so point to it is, I think, the thing we're trying to discuss in a lot of ways. When some someone dies in the name of saving the world, it's sad, but you don't say, oh, well, what could be done? When someone dies to keep an eternal alive, I mean, you kind of should, like, I don't know, there is a kind of a a weight to that. There's a a trade and a payment. And it's almost like people are mad that the X-Men found a way around that payment, around that trade-off. 
the only people they're hurting are their own like it's it's stem cells like who is that yeah or it's clear college debt well i paid for my college so everybody else should have to suffer under college debt forever too it's it's something that you see constantly in the real world with i had to pay a toll you should have to pay that toll too you shouldn't be able to get around it even if you have your own other struggles that are very different from mine you don't get to get away with something i did he makes those arguments in here, Gillen is bringing up all of those perspectives and points. And I think that now for those of us who are engaged and deal with these diverse opinions, whether it's through politics or education or you know social activism, it makes this more real and fleshed out. It makes this a much more lived in and impacted world, which for taking two pages out to give us these six single panels of perspective accomplishes a lot more than another big beautiful page of giant centaur plant gods or whatever would have you know as pretty as that might have looked and so there's a couple of other things that i want to directly engage with about this issue and while i think there is a lot to be discussed about this amazing new celestial judgment god and i can't wait to get to him there's something i want to praise about the format kieran gillen and valerio skidi and marta gracia along with clayton cowles being so incredibly clever about where these bubbles go. We managed to get a crossover that pauses the discussion of the event to have intimate character moments. For my sake, that's what I'm always saying is missing from these crossovers and I think, Kevo, perhaps that's why you're like, I didn't think Jean got any special treatment. I get that. You would think that Jean Grey would normally get this much internal agency and panel time. You would think this much Jean Grey wasn't weird. But the problem is, this much Jean Grey is weird. This much Jean Gray is a spotlight because there's so often this need to push the new exciting character. And so, yes, I agree. We do need to keep pushing new and exciting characters, especially when those characters represent a chance at diversity and a chance for people to see themselves in these comics. No question. I'm not even here to discuss it. The thing that happens, though, is so often these characters just appear then. They don't really get a chance to exist or thrive. They're just on the page and as a result of just being on the page but not really getting any time to grow develop or do anything direct with the plot we wind up with a lot of moments where we see Jean Grey that don't tell us anything about Jean Grey nor does she do anything with the plot. The amount of times we were able to stop and see small engagement between characters who we both expect engagement between Jean and Exodus or characters who we never get to really see positive engagement between, but the results were impactful, like Scott and Cap, I think it's proof that we are reaching a point where crossovers have to change. And I think how much Ten of Swords was fight, then talk, fight, then talk. I sort of think that unhomogenized, unrefined separation of content is reaching kind of its usefulness's limit. And I think we're starting to see what crossovers are going to become. Moments in a central location that radiate out and we see reflection in titles. And I would love to know what you guys think about sort of the changing nature of the crossover. Kevo, I know you're not the biggest crossovers guy, but that's in part because I know you've always felt held out of them by how much you need to read them. And Josh, you've read literally every crossover. Literally. So for me, I think the most exciting change that I saw coming in crossovers was uh, during Empire. And it wasn't a deliberate one on the part of the publisher, but it was one that I would hope they could have learned from and stuck with. And they deliberately did it with Hawks Pox 
which is getting all of your art in, getting all of your books finalized, and then releasing them week after week after week, making it an event that can maintain weekly momentum and online discourse where everyone can be regularly engaging. It doesn't, you know, you, there's no weeks off getting distracted, thinking of other things. It's just one week after the next, the same way we see with, say, a Disney Plus show where, you know, it's dropping every Wednesday and we're all on there, you know, and we want to read it first so that way we, you know, don't get spoiled and we want to talk about it on the internet. I thought that that type of release enriched the reading experience because of what we were able to create in the fan environment around it. For me, as someone who reads too much and is so busy and like when you release shit a month apart, I cannot remember what happened in the last issue. Like I forget half the time. It helps me, you know, more cohesively digest the material when I'm getting it in those closer increments. And it was just a more enjoyable experience for me. House of X, Powers of 10, there were 24 parts to 10 of Swords, but we got weekly installments of those once they started releasing. Then with Empire again, I love that as the idea. And now I know that our 37 parts of this are coming out with something just about every week, I do believe. Unfortunately, the Judgment Day checklist doesn't do anything to really kind of split or break it up into what are the, you know, the, the primary books and what are the peripheral books? You know, what are the things that are my main core story and what are my, you know, here's our characters in this book being affected by Judgment Day? I think that dilutes not just for me as a reader who might not read all 37 parts, but for the overall reading and engagement community, it dilutes down what we share and get excited about. Because if we had 37 episodes of MCU shows coming out on Disney Plus over two, three months, we would not all be watching all 37. And the discourse would be less focused and less engaging. You know, I'm looking forward to Death to Mutants number one. And I hope that X-Men number 13 plays a big part in this. But like, <laughs> is Legion of X number six really something that I, I need to be reading or I won't be lost? Like, is Axe Star Fox number one. The delivery method of this is not exactly the way I would have wanted to receive it for this series. I, I would have hoped that they would have taken more from, say, Empire or Pox Pox. And I'm with you on that because, like, I'm super caught up on Shang-Chi, but, like, I can't for the fucking life of me figure out what what could Shang-Chi possibly have to do with this? Like, what what on earth? And, like, I'm gonna find out and I'm gonna think it's great, but I don't know. Kevo, does the number of, like, one shots and tie-ins and all of the crossover like how does that affect your engagement as somebody coming in from the outside well and the thing is i'm not caught up on shang chi and i would not have until you said that sentence thought that it would have anything to do with what is going on with what i am currently reading i have nothing to indicate that it in any way should you know i am mostly just trying to read this like i i'm going out of my way specifically to not do any extra research or or look into the extra titles i am just trying to focus on the title that i am covering to be able to have the perspective of did they need to give us more uh, so far, I I think it's too early to say, obviously, on the second issue of Judgment Day, it would be. But so far, there's nothing that indicates to me anything that I'm missing. There's stuff that I'm not getting the relevance of, like the Exodus sign stuff that you were talking about. That was like a blip to me. That was not even the most significant part of the issue. I'm going to have to go back and reread to understand more of how that would have been significant. Because to me, it was just part of the fighting, and I just scrolled right past it. Not like ignoring it but you know it was just part of the story and i let it wash over me 
I think I'll have a better idea, you know, in a couple of issues, how much is going on that might be going on over my head. But so far, there isn't anything to indicate from the story I'm being given that I'm missing anything. It all seems to be a cohesive story to me, who's not reading any of the other back matter. And the way that different writers integrate their clients is crucial as well. Now, I always like to hold up or mention Kelly Sue DeConnick during Jonathan Hickman's Infinity because Kelly Sue DeConnick was writing Avengers Assemble at the time and her Infinity tie-ins were some of the, I would say, most essential, non-essential tie-ins that like she didn't just do, well, this shit's going on in the background of my story. She took her characters where they were in the issues of Infinity and when her issues were coming out in between, she was telling those in-between stories like they were deleted scenes from the main Infinity. Like they were additional stuff that got edited for time. Like they were more of the complete story. And, you know, we had Immortal X-Men 5 last week, which is a similar thing because it's written also by Kieran Gillen. So he gave us 20 pages of Exodus telling his story, tying his whole background in and leading him into this battle where he was about to just go fucking head to head with sign. And so if you didn't read that, then okay, you got one of the X-Men came up, took through a haymaker and took down an Eternal. But if you did read that, you had a lot of extra depth there and it made it more impactful, which I mean, is the best way to write your tie-ins to a crossover. Unfortunately, you know, it happens so little of the time that most of us are burnt out and feel like we get robbed when we try to buy all these tie-ins for a major crossover like this. And I can definitely see that where having the other material would make a lot of the things in this more impactful. I think the only thing that I feel is necessary to come cold into this crossover to have read to really get a better sense of what is going on is the Eternal stuff that uh, was covering earlier this year with the rest of the team. I don't even think that you need a better understanding of what's going on with the X-Men and Krakoa and Resurrection and all of that stuff because I really feel like the X-Men are basically just innocent victims in a lot of this in terms of the Eternals just started this fight. The X-Men and the mutants were just really minding their own business and hadn't done anything other than existing and thriving to cause this reaction from the Eternals. And if you haven't read the Eternals and don't understand their function, which I feel most mainstream comic fans or geeks don't have a strong sense of who the Eternals are. Everyone who is, you know, a geek now pretty much has some idea of who the X-Men, who the Avengers, who Marvel comic heroes are. But I think the Eternals are probably the biggest mystery among these characters that are being used to the common viewer or reader. And I think without understanding, they're basically machines that are programmed. They are doing this and don't really have much of a choice as to going along with this. If you don't understand that culture of the Eternals, I think you would struggle to get their motivation a little bit more, whereas the X-Men are just living their lives and were attacked. And I don't think that you, I'm sure knowing more about the X-Men would develop more sympathy and more feeling on their place in it. 
but I don't think it's as required as I would say the Eternals coverage is. Oh, you are absolutely correct. For our listeners, if you heard us in our coverage of Judgment Day issue one, I had not read any of the Eternal stuff. And one of my big things is coming into Judgment Day as an X-Men reader, I was like, what the fuck is like, I don't understand half of this shit. I have no idea what's going on or why some of these characters are acting this way or what the shit this is. And I read the first Eternals trade in between Judgment Day number one and number two. And I have a completely different, much deeper understanding of the board here as a result of it, not knowing what the kind of general background or status quo is for the Eternals from that book leaves you lost. That is some prerequisite reading for this series, I think. Whereas the X-Men stuff and the mutant stuff, I feel like they are filling you in on the pieces as you go of the things that you need to know. It's just general, like this is what's going on in their culture and society right now. They aren't even devoting too much time to having to catch you up, but they still are being like, these are the little bits of information that you need to understand where the mutants are. Whereas... Well, the Eternals are the threat. The Eternals are the threat. So you have to understand the yeah. threat in order to be invested in it. Exactly. The real threat was the friends we made all along. Because I think the key element here is the actual threat seems to be this new celestial judgment god. And it looks like we did that one. Oops, that's on us. That's on the good guys. Yeah, sorry about that. We knew that this was all going to go fucked up sideways once Tony Stark made a joke. It's kind of like I'm making an Ultron, right? Yep. Once once we start. But here's the thing. Did we just make a celestial? You keep saying we and like 90% of the people that are involved in this fight right now are all doing something else. And like 10% of the people are secretly up at Avengers Mountain building a god. It's not so much a we. Yeah, the only representative from Krakoa was Sinister. So um... it's Makari and Ajak convinced Mr. Sinister and Tony Stark to back them up on building a god. That's like the dumbest possible team to put in charge of that. And Tony Stark only did it because he thought Reed Richards would be jealous, which tracks. Well, and okay, but here's the thing. I, this is just, this is just a host judgment now. And like, I am both thrilled about it and kind of like, oh, but like, I'm here for it. And my question is, but who is the judgment for? This isn't like a normal celestial. This isn't like, oh, part of the betterment of celestial kind. I think it's everyone on this planet. I think it is the mutants and the deviants and the eternals and the humans and the gods alike. I think it is all of the inhabitants of this planet. But but in the name of who? What is the purpose? Yes. Who does this celestial god serve? Yes. Well, the thing that they hit really hard, I took note of this in my head specifically, so this must be the answer, but I don't know what that makes the actual answer. It's what they put into it. Ajak hit very hard. This god is going to be our scripture come to life. It is going to be the god that we, the people of this planet, need. So it's that thing of whatever your heart's secret wish is, is what's going to happen. So we need to be asking ourselves, what would be the scripture that they were putting into this? What would they be asking for? The scripture was written by Selma Hayek, Tony Stark, and Mr. Sinister, so... So basically, Michael Kors just made a dark god. Great. But at the same time, the narration boxes that we've been looking at and the person that drew our attention to these six people 
is this sleeping and now awake God? So as much as those far are the ones that built it, they weren't the only ones in control. They weren't just building a God for the four of them. They were building a God for this world. And because they were building something so much bigger and more powerful than they fully had control of, even if they only wanted this God to take their word into account, that's not necessarily what is going to happen with a being this powerful. If it was made for all of the people, then it's here to be for all of the people. I'm ready to see what happens. Now, we are running at the end of our segment, so I would love to get final thoughts or last parting judgment glances on our way out of the second part of our six part, but like 37 installment crossover. So the fact that this is two of six for Judgment Day, um, not including Omega and Eve and, you know, not counting the tie-ins and the standalones and all that, but just of the Acts Judgment Day one through six, this could be seen as the end of Act one. And so I think in terms of a starting act, we see a clear bridge here into the next part of the narrative structure. We see a clear change in threat and focus. Kieran Gillen has done a good job of setting up a stage of very diverse characters characters in a very full world for what comes next. And I think that, you know, there'll probably be some more swerves. And God, if <laughs> like you could have sold me on this, if you told me that this was a series about, you know, Kieran Gillen is going to write a book about how the fucked up heroes of Earth make a God based on themselves. And then it's a fucked up God that threatens the entire world. Like you probably I would have just handed you all my money like a Futurama meme. So um, I- I'm-, I'm invested. I- I- I'm in for the long haul now yeah same i love that you pointed to the fact that this is the end of the first act so my attention is immediately drawn to what will be the end of issue four what will be the second act twist uh as there generally is and how is what is happening going to resolve in a way that will affect this world as a whole and what will be the consequences going forward. I think the main consequence I'm looking to see is now that we made a god, what is this god looking to do? Is he a passive god, an active god? Is this going to be judgment and then relax? Is this going to be judgment and then fire and brimstone? What kind of situation are we looking at? Is this going to be done at the end of the crossover? Or are we entering a new age of Marvels? I'm pretty excited to see what happens, Marvel Man. And (laughs) until we come back, keep judging stay judgy (laughs) stay judgy hey everybody welcome to another exciting segment of x for podcast where we talk about modern marvels chronos giving classics and xi4p alternate realities i'm nathan you can find me online at twitter at dazzler aoa that's like dazzler in the age of apocalypse hi everyone i'm tori sheehan you can find me online at tori underscore sheehan on twitter and at sm tori that's tori with an i on instagram hello it's me steve and you can find me on twitter at howdy duda that's h-o-w-d-y-d-u and that makes me Raven, aka Dame Red Thread. Come on, find me on TikTok and Twitter when I'm not banned, and Instagram. 
And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience, just like Mariko did with this yokai that was a living embodiment of samurai armor. And that means we can only be talking about Demon Wars, the Iron Samurai. This is part one into the spirit world, and our story and our art are by the amazingly talented Peach Momoko, co-scripted by Zach Davison, and lettering by VCs R. Ariana Mayer. Peach Momoko and Ariana Mayer. Oh, I'm like, sorry, that made me so happy when I saw that. Getting the team back together. I'm so excited to see where this Demon Wars saga takes us. I loved the Demon Days saga. This issue suffers a little bit from the same thing, like the jump from Demon Days 1 to Demon Days 2, where you've got mm. to set up this big, beautiful story. So you're doing a lot of the initial setup, so it's not as instantly a jump into a as it was before I can tell by the end of the issue I was like okay cool I can see where this is going I'm kind of excited for this really cool land that we got to see I'm really excited for the war that's coming up I gotta say I'm really interested in the structure of this story slash event because it really helped when you said Demon Wars Iron Samurai into this part one into the spirit world because by saying part one into the spirit world you made me think this issue is called into the spirit world but when I was first reading this I was like all right, so this is Demon Days world, but this is Demon Wars, but this is Demon Wars Iron Samurai, and they're going to be Demon Wars other things, like presumably the Captain America thing. But then mm-hmm. this is Into Spirit World Part 1, and I was like, is this going to be Demon Wars Iron Samurai Into Spirit World Part 2 next, or is it going to be the Captain America thing with a different story? The structure of it is very interesting to me. The characters that we have, besides Mariko from Demon Days, are just like, back to kind of being the least like their comic book selves. Natasha's back to being a maid, her grandmother's just back to being a little old granny like we've lost what was exciting and interesting about her life from the previous ones and so it gives that extra like feel of like fairy tale and strangeness where she doesn't know why no one else remembers or is talking about it i was really interested about that see and that oddly enough was like my least favorite thing i'm like if the rest of the world goes back to not knowing okay that's fine that's one thing but like for granny and the black widow analog to go back to just being a maid and a grandmother i'm just like no of all the people they should have kept at least slightly in the know and slightly badass but like covering for what's going on the granny and the maid should be the one to remember and like it kind of took a step backwards for me because i'm like i want to be invested in this world between worlds and the struggle to find your place in either you know one society or the next kind of needed that go between it feels like it was just a hard reset Mariko went into Demon Days having no idea of her backstory. Granny and Kuroki both already knew about these other worlds, so they've had time to live in it and deal with it. And I think Mariko being so new in this and it's so fresh and like this is her first chance to go back to normal life afterwards. And she's like, uh, is this all there is to life? <laughs> like after she goes back to her normal life after having this huge life shattering like event, that's how I can justify that part of it. It is a little like anticlimactic yes i do like that it has a through line connection to the last series in that like the events of the last series and the use of the jawbone the use of the power of it is the inciting incident for this story you know it is awoken her ancestor oni who is possessed by carnage in a really cool way like i think the visualization of carnage writing as an extra head on the side of the the next stump is mm-hmm. lightning and cool in a very mythological and like monstrous fashion i had to laugh 
slash B just a little bit oh, when I saw the offerings that were left for this demon and it's a little bit of food and spirits but I'm like you you have no head <laughs> how are you gonna eat any of that I'm also slightly wondering if the reason why we have such a hard reset is that this is going to be one of those heroes journeys where they had guidance in the first one, but now they have to be kind of unmoored and decide for themselves who who is trustworthy out there and where where they should receive their guidance from next. <laughs> if that isn't Charles, I don't know who is creeping around in the backside of things, smiling creepily, like forcing people into situations that they never asked for. Yeah, that's Charles. <laughs> conscripting children to do his bidding especially young girls <laughs> I don't know if that's specifically Charles the colors initially made me think well those are Cap's colors but that's not the Cap analog because we see the Cap analog on the, the cover when he first shows up as the blue robed monk with the six ring staff there's an eye on the staff and then if you look at his straw hat there is an X it does look like an X in a circle but that's I believe that's the Japanese hiragana character for Mei yeah Yes, but I'm just saying that would be a huge coincidence. It does also appear to be the Eye of Agamotto, for sure. Oh, and that would make sense with the red cape. But he's wearing a lot of blue and yellow, so it just, to me, it screams X-Men. And I think that it would be interesting if the May is supposed to be representative of an X in a circle, although if it's an M-E sound, maybe it's more towards the men part of X-Men, but I don't know. Mm. It could be that. The red neck thing is reminiscent of the Cloak of Levitation. The scarf is reminiscent of the scarf that Doctor Strange wears during Jason Aaron's run, and Jason Aaron did wear blue a lot during that time period. I wonder if this character is going to be a combination of the two. In that magical cloud of people and yokai that Mariko sees on the train or the bus, that does appear to be Sunfire. Yes! That helmet is so reminiscent of Sunfire. I would say, like, I'm having fun trying to figure out who these characters are supposed to be. I love all the different kinds of yokai that they have floating through here. It's amazing. The art with it is incredible. The way that they just bleed into her world. It is so reminiscent to me of the way that Chris Bocciolo's Doctor Strange run worked. I have to commend the whole team on making us guess because if it was just super clear we would already know the story and it would be too predictable. To have us having to guess and shift our perspective on figuring out who these people are as they stand makes it less predictable. When Mariko goes into the world that she's transported into, she's meted by Oami because that means actually like big, large so I'm wondering, is that the wasp? Like, because she's she's so small and like her name means big. So like, could that be Jan Van Dyne? Could she have been greeted by the wasp? Obviously the Iron Samurai, we all agree that's got to be Iron, right? Yeah. Now, is that Captain America, the bird that comes? That is Falcon. So Hayabusa is Japanese for a peregrine falcon. He looks like a falcon. I mean, I'm just a birder, mm -hmm. not as into the yokai, but he clearly looks like a falcon. I was hoping that it was something like that he does not appear to have much in common with falcon what about this uh, wart person the ibogami because it, it could be wolverine wolverine's a dog it's got to be wolverine right or deadpool. <laughs> oh, deadpool. so my real theory is i don't think it's actually anybody there are probably some characters that will be introduced to in yokai mm. that don't have a correlation that are meant to help with the story but they might not have had a character in mind that can play that role from civil war but my fun answer 
is that it's Hank. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that, that there are some things that are not going to yeah. correlate. Although that's a little frustrating, if only because we know like like the entire concept of the series sort of is that it's an adaptation of Marvel Comics into the yokai. And I think that it would be more fun for most readers if there were more analogies. But I, I'm also into the idea of just like branching out and creating its own unique universe here. Can we get a Black Panther yokai who I love the tails on him oh my god oh yeah because he's a bakineko the one that appears that has the golden mask like i'm wondering if she's madam mask or if she's destiny. i was wondering the same i read thing. that as destiny she has oh, real god. big madam mask energy but the mask is very specifically destiny style yeah. with no mouth and the big creepy eyes i think the cat next to the samurai is might be tigra that's what we were thinking when we were reading through it like just a straight up cat yeah what did we think about the story so far i really like the idea of the power being used being something that has has a cost, as Raven is so fond of reminding us. It is something that has unintended consequences that are throwing the world of the yokai into more disorder than they were already in. And it's kind of continuing the idea from the previous series that the world of the yokai has become so much smaller since the oni were forced into hiding after the disastrous contact with humans. And I think we're getting to see a little bit more development of that here. And that to me reads very much like Civil War, because like a lot of heroes had to very much go underground or become very secretive because of like the the accords that were signed and you know the shit that went down quickly mariko's thrown into this world and she's given this really quick crash course introduction to the power structures and the struggle that's going on and like i kind of love how at this point we know as much as mariko does i know from the past installment that the journey that we take to get there is going to be an amazing one we are going to get these characters fleshed out i also like like as a person who mm, has yet to read the civil war comics and it's so mostly going off of like the the general zeitgeist of the idea mariko is just as confused and a little bit on both sides as i am and so it's really great that you're able to step into it without having to know the ins and outs of civil war to be able to understand what's going on yes frankly i think if you know what happens in civil war this might be more confusing because you'll be trying to look for parallels and there just so far aren't as many like the main parallel is that iron man is on one side of a civil <laughs> so similar to tori i haven't read the initial end or anything that came after civil war and there are two things about the story that I, I am looking at i'm looking at the correlation of translating the, at least the concept of civil war into this you know mystical japanese folklore story as well as the actual story itself and those are i think two separate identities in terms of how, translating the idea of civil war where you have all these people who are supposed to be on the same team, all these yokai, pitted against one another because they have different ideas of what they want to do with this, you know, character the carnage, if you will, of not knowing exactly, do we want to put the head back on? Because then that'll be certain consequences, but if we don't put the head back on, it's easier to defeat, but that's still causing problems so it's like, what do you do? I think that translation works pretty well because like Tori said, I think there are merits to both sides and I think that's when you have a good conflict, especially like a character like Mariko who's kind of caught in the middle and doesn't really know anything 
anything. I think it works well if both sides are presented in a way where you're like, I, you can kind of see either side. That makes sense. And I think that works really well. So especially in like Japanese folklore, you want something kind of evil or dangerous or cursed in an area, but like contained by either like wards or a shrine or something to that effect. And the evil thing will ward off other evil things that are weaker than it. So it's it's almost like having a tiger in an area that you're, you keep a fence in to keep out grizzly bears. You put a scary evil thing in one place, aka carnage, in order to keep the area more or less safe because other things are, are going to go, oh, that's a big bad. No, I'm going to avoid that area. I think that this works a lot better than the original Civil War, specifically having read both. The original Civil War, both sides are intended for you to be like, oh, I can see the merits both, but both sides are actually pretty stupid and like generally contrived. I'm really dumbing it down because I'm just talking through it quickly and it's been relitigated over and over for like the last 15 years, but it was just made to drive an event comic with two people fighting. Whereas this seems more organically drawn from like sides that yokai would actually pick. There are people, everybody thinks that yes, this Oni deserves a right to life and to come back and be part of the community. But some people are concerned that they may be too dangerous to be in the community and dangerous to the community. So there's a push and pull there that makes a lot of sense from every side. And that can be nuanced and something that can be worked through. Whereas the original Civil War really ends up making everybody look bad. And there's only one side that really is like agreeable in the end, other than like, depending on how into authoritarianism you are. Cap was right. Yeah. At least the stances here feel not only more organic, but just more plausible in the sense of like, okay, there's something you could actually see people fighting over. Uh, the events of the actual Civil War in Marvel Comics, uh, not so much, but part of this story just evokes the feelings of Spirited Away for me in the sense of you have this young girl kind of being placed upon this, you know, spiritual and magical place and kind of having to go through her own journey, a little bit of like self-discovery and understanding like who you are and what that means in your role. I really am excited to kind of see the separation of the two worlds and how they're going to interact. And, you know, uh, is that wall between the yokai world and the human world, even though it's peaceful, going to come down? And what does that mean? Um, is Mariko going to be the key to all of this? I am very fascinated to at least see those parts. I do think being thrown in so suddenly in the sense that everybody kind of forgot what happened except for Mariko, it is a little jarring. Big of things happened in Demon Days. And then for this to just reference, but talk about well we're kind of just moving past it it does feel i guess a little forgetful in a way that i wish we can remember it more if that makes sense if we could play a little bit more homage as opposed to saying okay we're done with that story we're going on to a different one i think having some effects from that story bleed into this would have been a little bit more interesting but also maybe that there's just not enough room to talk about consequences from demon days over in demon wars because there's so much that has to go into demon wars i think that a lot of what happened in the last series has the potential yeah. to have lasting consequences for this one I don't know yet, obviously, we're just in the first issue, but it does seem to me that there's at least motions towards the idea that the stuff that happened last time is going to be really important to this one. I mean, I, I personally would love to see her, her sister come back and play a major role in this. I don't know if that will actually happen, but that would be fantastic. I'm kind of wondering myself, because the jawbone is a central item, and they like even reference its power and how it's the thing that's kicking everything off. But yeah, like it was also a central item for Demon Days, so... 
I'm hoping they explain it a little bit more, but I don't know what they're going to do with that. It makes me wonder if this is their way of kind of saying, like, don't expect for everyone from Demon Days to show back up again. Yeah. We're past it. We're not going to get our favorite Russian assassin again. We're not going to get the granny to provide the magic again. Or it could be a feint where we get to believe that they forgot it and then they, like, come in at the last minute. I definitely think that there's, like, reasoning behind it that is important for making sure that the story moves forward without getting bogged down and everything. I'm totally okay with these being two mostly unconnected stories set within the same universe because I feel like that follows the mandate of Demon Days as a whole, which is like, you know, creating Peach Momoko's Marvel Universe, which I still think is so crazy that they're doing that. I just got done reading all of the Marvels a few months ago, and there's just something so magical to me having read that, looking at the tapestry of the Marvel Universe and how it's all a bunch of stories that are told within one universe, but it's also all one story. It's one interweaving, interconnected story from 1961 to now. And I like that Demon Days is starting to feel like that already. It's only their second story and it's set in the same universe and consequences from the last story matter, but this is not this is not just a sequel to that story. It is a new story being told within the confines of that universe and things changed and they are going to keep changing. I love how it can become this expansive Momokoverse, this whole universe of our creations. The beautifully drawn like horror yokai creatures like i love all of it it was already like next level but this is like next next level for me her colors her use of paneling like her her visual storytelling skills are beautiful and on fire you know you've got davison co-scripting it and he's doing an amazing job and with ariana myers you don't notice lettering in sfx usually as much as you do in the demon days or the demon war books but like like ariana's got to be having so much fun doing this lettering and these effects i think the lettering right now it has to be subtle because we're easing back into it and we're spending a lot of time in the normal world but i think it's going to get more and more exciting particularly if we spend more time with this like carnage oni because i mean i remember the venom snake vividly oh the venom we're gonna get we're gonna get some good shit so i'll wait peach uses these kind of muddy ruddy reddish tones for the regular world and it just it makes it feel very monotone very just one note which i guess you know regular life would just seem really one note after demon days but when she goes to the yokai realm there's a lot of color and you know different tones hues values like it just changes completely and becomes more alive and i love the fact that there is a very clear separation between those two worlds very dorothy in the the world of oz kind of moments exactly when you look at the the inhabitants of the world that mariko goes into like they're not as horrifying looking at least initially as the the visions that mariko is having in the real world the the creatures that she is bumping into on the street in the real world with its very red monotone colors are just like absolutely horrifying like one of my favorite panels all time is gotta be page three you just see the ogen mist coming out of Mariko and then the the jawbone on her face and like it looks like her face is melting right there. I love the use of the um smoky soul balls as kind of when he when uh the iron samurai is holding it in his hand that like iconic iron man power up shot that they redid it for this was just really beautiful for me. Honestly, this whole thing is just uh, just beautiful. <laughs> I really 
love when we see the man with the blue robes. That transition from her running through like the night chasing after these little what looks like bits of paper in in the normal world but to her look like yokai. Seeing that that transition from the average everyday to this giant Tory gate that pops up in the middle of the street and leads her into the yokai world. Uh, I love it. That's like my fave. My favorite page in this is the one that they gave us in previews. I honestly, I hate when they do that. I hate when they give the best art in a comic in the preview page. Just, you know, the eyes rolling back with the red eyes and the smoke coming out of the jawbone and the dead face. And it's so expressive. It's so frightening. It's so surreal. It's hard to top that. But if I had to choose something else, it would definitely be all the yokai floating over Mariko when she's in bed. I love the food panel. I love the dongo. I love the onigiri. Mm-hmm. I like all of that, please. Okay. It's again with Japanese media depicting food that I just want to eat. Everything looks delicious. I love it when a artist can, in one moment, create something so viscerally terrifying, but then in another moment, create something that is so fun and whimsical. I love the versatility. I love this character design for the Madame Mask slash Destiny character. It's so fun. It's so beautiful. Like, every time I flip through, I just can't stop but look at her. Like, kind of want, like, a whole Demon Days series about just this one woman. I know this is issue one. It's a setup. It's it's maybe not as balls to the walls as, you know, the last few issues of Demon Days were, but, like, I gotta remember back to Demon Days. The first issue was a big setup for the whole tale, and it was a bit of a jump from the first issue to the second issue but once we got into it probably one of my favorite stories in comics in years can we also give a shout out to the demon wars yokai files that those last couple pages <gasps> i am in love with this and i love the fact that i get to learn a little bit of something something because a it helps me understand the story better but b it also helps me understand the culture better and like it's not just oh yeah we've got you know random armor walking around in our story it's like oh no this there's history to the bakoyori the empty armor that we think is Iron Man. Like, there's an entire freaking you know, reason behind it. So it's like, I love the fact that we get to learn about all these things because it informs us about how the story is going to be told. Yeah, those are one of my favorite things about Demon Days. It kind of helped me realize why they chose these particular characters because they map so well onto these yokai and Oni. It's always really cool to see them come back again. And I think Zach does a really great job with putting them together. Yeah, I have to agree. Reading through the yokai files for the Bakayorori is, uh, I, I could understand why you're like, all right, this is why Iron Man is this character. Yeah. It totally makes sense. You did the hard work and you found somebody who could absolutely evoke this particular yoga. I love reading about the Ibogami, the work god. Love it. Yeah, that was nice just because I've seen that appear in media over and over and never known what the hell that thing was supposed to be. I was like, is it garlic? What is it? And I was like, no, it's garlic. <laughs> I mean, possibly. I would love a little garlic oni running around. That's my oni right there. It's impossible to sit here and try to envision what you see for the future for a peach story. But where would you like to see this go? Or what kind of creatures would you like to see get brought into the story? I mean, Carnage has to get loose at some point, right? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Oh, yeah. Like, if he doesn't... Yeah, he's got to get out, right? And also, will we see a daddy Venom? (laughs) Well, I mean, we we saw Venom as the Orochi. Chimaru in the last 
So I wonder if they come back. I know this carnage is going to have to play a huge part of the story, but like, I'm just really excited to see where this story goes in the unison of this creative team that like created like something close to perfect in Demon Days. And, you know, like the magic of this creative team working together is like so exciting to me. I hope that Mariko has achieved a synthesis of her human and yokai lives. I would rather that... She doesn't have to go back at the end to being human once again and leaving this world. It's very clear that she can't sleep without it. She can't live properly without it. She feels like half of her is missing. And I, I'm hoping that this is a journey for her of true discovery and that she'll fully become integrated with the community in this world that she's a part of. To me, this is being set up into a trilogy. And so for me, if at the end of the first one, she goes back to the human world missing something, to me, this would be going and staying in the other world world and then missing the human side and then it's the end of the third one where we find the balance the unannounced third series called i don't know demon's reign oh that's pretty good <laughs> we're gonna have billy club magic over here yay <laughs> at the billy club pod come on down <laughs> i just want the stories to continue <laughs> I almost don't care where they go with the next series. But like for this series, I don't know. I in, Instead of trying to dictate where this story should go, I think I've I've started to really trust Peach and their team to tell a fantastic story. And instead of trying to dictate because they aren't doing a direct analog, they're doing a, a slight derivation in, of their own variety. So I'm just like, okay, you know what? Instead of trying to dictate the story, I think I'm just going to try trust the process which is a hard thing for me to do and everybody knows that but like they've done so amazing so far i'm just i'm here for whatever they want to put out my favorite yokai are yukionas which are the ice spirits that live in mountains and then they like they like find wanderers and then they kill them they're, like these beautiful women in like white kimonos and they're like they're out in blizzards and they have ice powers and i think they're cool that's so cool it's like a snow siren exactly yes i don't know if there's an avenger slash civil war character that you can kind of translate into that but what I'm looking forward to in this is one more Mariko. I think she's a very fascinating character and protagonist, and I'm really excited to see more of her. I'm really excited that we get more stories out of this the Peach Momo verse. And two, I'm really looking forward to and more interested in this way that we can bridge modern comics with Japanese folklore. And I'm really excited to see how the entirety of this Civil War event will shake out. Because I noticed that when Peach makes her comics, she doesn't typically like to follow a lot of what we do in our comics of like a lot of heavy action there's a lot of fighting scenes tends to be a little bit light on that which is absolutely fine there's nothing wrong with that but i am interested to see how that's going to translate to when i assume we eventually get the big fight between the two sides and what that's going to actually look like now i want to start seeing her style of art but with other styles of myth and folklore so like the peach momoko style but with african folklore for the storytelling i think there's oh man there's so much that can be done and so many amazing cultures that could be brought into comic books in this way i think maybe that's why i like peach momoko so much is they don't just go okay let's just do exactly what western comics does they have very much their own style to it it feels very connected to the mythos and the lore and the culture that it's representing the demon days and the demon wars like online you see a lot of people fight about 
like comics are better no manga is better and like you know a lot of the creators are coming and saying like no we all respect what each other does but like i i think like demon days and demon wars has been a really good bridge to see that you know both styles can exist in the same kind of format and they can come through and and shine together and become more than what they would have been separately if after the demon days demon wars demon reign saga if peach were able to get a mainstream marvel title i would love to see her bring as much nuance to the marvel character of mariko yoshida as she has to her momoko verse version like i think that's Mm -hmm. a character that in marvel has been purely defined by her relationship to a man in as Logan and you know mm-hmm. and also as well to her cousin Sunfire yeah. and to Silver Samurai and to and her family, and to her family. yeah where she hasn't really been able to be a character on her own she just exists as much in her relationship to- so I'd love to see her come to like mainstream Marvel and create a Mariko that's as strong and independent as her Demon Days Demores character. I think that'd be really interesting. I will also say this it was super interesting to have men talking for long periods of time in this one. We didn't get that a whole lot in the first in the first yeah, series. Yeah. Kind of surprising, right? Still haven't had like a two men talking without a lady there kind of thing, but like we mm. have men in bigger positions this time around. Yeah, no, that's yeah. that is interesting because Demon Days was very refreshingly like female centric. I love that. Mm-hmm. 